Hello, and welcome back to the Automotive Podcast. Just a few remarks I want to make at the beginning of the podcast. In the NSX episode, at the end, I proposed a question uh, to the listeners of what is the modern version of the NSX? Meaning, what is a modern car that provides the performance at the price range of the original NSX? That true driver enthusiast car that doesn't break the bank. I couldn't think of any off the top of my head. However, I did have a listener message me and his idea for a modern version of the NSX, a true successor to this car, was the 2007 GTR. And I have to agree that this is definitely a potential successor to the NSX. It is the same engine configuration, it's a V6. It's the same idea of lots of fancy technology being used to provide performance at a reasonable price. You can get one of these cars for about 40 grand used, and that's not a bad starting point for a car with that much performance and that much aftermarket support. So, thank you for your comment. I think it's a great idea for a successor to the NSX. The only issue I have with it is that it doesn't have a true manual transmission, and I am fully aware that the kind of transmission it has provides a, well, a faster car. It can handle the torque better, uh, but for true driver experience and really appreciating the feel of the car and the feedback of the car. I would want one that has a true manual transmission, but despite that, the GTR does seem to be a pretty good successor to the NSX. Coincidentally, the car I'm talking about this episode actually is tied to the original NSX. Uh, This episode is on the McLaren F1, and I want to thank Yester Spirit on Instagram for this suggestion. It was an amazing car to look into, and I think the only thing left to do is to jump right into it. So, every car has its own kind of story. You have cars that were just built by enthusiasts in a garage. You have cars that were designed to provide performance at a price that makes the car accessible to the general public, like the NSX. You have race cars that will never be made publicly available as they were solely built for the racetrack and they have the performance for the racetrack and will never be used on public roads. And then there are cars that are designed to be sold almost as pieces of art, so overly engineered and utilizing every new technology to create an incredible car at, let's be honest, an incredible price. These cars are absolute forces of nature that have no compromises and are available to only a select few. The McLaren F1 is one of these cars. The McLaren F1 was released in 1992. In total, only 106 cars would be built with the production ending in 1998. The F1 was designed to be the ultimate road car, and was not designed to necessarily find success on the race circuit. McLaren wanted to build a road car that would be the best road car ever, and weren't really looking to enter it into any kind of competition. Eventually, the car would be entered in automotive racing, and would do very well, But at its start, that was not the intended use for this car. 
This car is also incredibly impressive, and anyone who drives one seems to just be amazed by it. This car has been described as the finest driving machine yet built for the public road by Autocar. Channel 4 said that the F1 is the greatest automotive achievement of all time, and other praise includes, quote, the most excellent sports car of all time, end quote. That is some pretty incredible praise for a car. So my goal in this episode is to show and explain why this car is considered the greatest sports car ever built to this day. At its core, the McLaren F1 has a design that is not unique. It's lightweight, and it has a lot of power. That's pretty much every sports car these days. However, when it was being built, it was given the absolute bleeding edge of material science and technology to create the ultimate lightweight, high-powered sports cars. McLaren wanted to make it an enthusiast car, one that was designed to give feedback to the driver, to be enjoyable to drive, and to have the performance that would basically never give up. The car was filled with exotic materials including titanium, gold, magnesium, and Kevlar, and it wasn't weighed down by any driver-assisted technologies, and it was really a fundamental, simple sports car. This car was directly inspired by the NSX. At the time, McLaren had a very successful Formula One team, and their Formula One cars were powered by Honda engines, so the companies were fairly close. Through this relationship, a man named Gordon Murray, who was the chief engineer of the future McLaren F1, was able to test drive the NSX. This test drive changed Murray's perception of where he wanted the F1 to go. This is a quote from him after he completed this test drive. Quote, All the benchmark cars, Ferrari, Porsche, Lamborghini, I had been using as references in the development of my car vanished from my mind. Of course the car we would create, the McLaren F1, needed to be faster than the NSX, but the NSX ride quality and handling would become our new design target. In some ways this just shows how impressive the NSX was on its own. And in some ways, the McLaren F1 is just kind of a grown-up, way more expensive NSX. You can even see that in the looks of the car. As I talked about in the episode of the NSX, it was inspired by a fighter jet featuring a cockpit for the driver. And this continues into the McLaren F1. It's a similar looking car. It looks more expensive, it looks more hyper sports car, uh, but fundamentally, they're kind of similar looking cars. However, that changes quickly once you start to look at the engine. As Murray had said in his quote, they want to give the F1 a lot more power. And the original plan was to stick with Honda. McLaren had success with Honda engines, the companies were already close, and so Murray asked Honda to create a 4.5 liter V10 or V12 for use in this new McLaren F1. 
However, Honda was not interested in creating this engine, and eventually the F1 would be given a BMW V12. Another little interesting side note is when the development of the McLaren F1 started, they actually used kit cars as testbeds. These kit cars were created by Ultima Sport and were powered by a Chevy V8. Two of these kit cars would be used to test the components that would eventually be used in the McLaren F1. One would keep the Chevy engine but be given the transmission for the F1 to test that, and the other one would have an engine swap to this new V12 developed by BMW in order to test the engine on its own. After testing was finished though, both of these cars were quickly destroyed as McLaren didn't want their new supercar to be seen as a kit car, which is understandable. Also, once the McLaren F1 was officially released, it wasn't actually road legal due to it missing indicators, and McLaren would have to make small changes in the near future to allow it to be driven on public roads, which is a little funny because the entire point of this car was to be a road car, and yet they kind of forgot some key elements to that. But that got sorted quickly, and the car would be road legal. One of the more interesting things about the McLaren F1 is its engine. There is a trend towards forced induction for high performance, and that's pretty reasonable. Forced induction allows for a lot of performance to be pulled out of an engine, because the number one bottleneck to power is air. It's pretty easy to get lots of fuel into an engine, however it is more difficult to get lots of air into an engine, and both are required for power. So things like turbochargers and superchargers really allow air to be shoved into an engine to make power. The McLaren F1 did not use force induction, it was a naturally aspirated engine. And the reason for this is that a naturally aspirated engine is more reliable. Forced induction makes big power, but forced induction also makes it easier to blow up engines. The second reason is that naturally aspirated engines have much better throttle response. Any kind of forced induction introduces a delay between you pressing the throttle and the engine going. It has to build up the air pressure. So if there's no forced induction, the engine responds much more quickly. So if the goal is to make a very fun, very responsive car, turbocharging or force induction usually isn't the best option. These power adders remove the direct feedback to the driver. There's just more stuff in between the driver and the road. So after Honda's refusal to provide an engine for the McLaren F1, an engine from a Zuzu was actually looked at. This was another V12, however, it wasn't tested yet. It had been designed and built for Formula One, but hadn't actually been used yet, and this was a little sketchy for McLaren. They wanted an engine that had been tested and to be shown to be reliable. This is when they went to BMW, and BMW basically created a V12 specifically for the McLaren F1. This engine would be mounted in the middle of the car to balance weight distribution and help to improve handling. This engine would have a 60 degree cylinder bank angle and have a displacement of 6.1 liters. 
This means that the engine is very impressive in the fact that it provides 100 horsepower per liter of displacement. It was a dual overhead cam design, and it was also fitted with a relatively new technology for the time of variable valve timing. This is similar to VTEC in the idea that it adjusts how long the valves stay open depending on the RPMs of the engine. At idle, this system would reduce the intake valve time relative to the exhaust valve to allow for smoother idle. However, at higher revs, the time would be increased, so the intake valve would be open longer. This would increase airflow and therefore increase power. This engine produced a lot of heat, and when you're building a car with no compromises, why not really, really go for the most exotic and expensive option? So to deal with this heat, McLaren lined the engine bay with pure gold. Which is fancy, but it also does a great job of reflecting heat and keeping the rest of the car cool from this massive little heat-producing engine right in the middle. This car was also given dry sump lubrication, which is pretty common for high-performance cars. Dry sump lubrication means that the engine oil is stored in an external reservoir and is pumped into the engine. It is not stored in the oil pan underneath the engine, which is common for high-production cars. This system prevents oil starvation during high-speed cornering because the oil isn't sloshing around everywhere in the engine, and the system allows the oil pan to be much smaller because it doesn't need to store all the oil, which allows the engine to sit lower in the car and thus lower the center of gravity, which again improves handling as it reduces body roll through a corner. The engine also was pretty extreme in the fact that it had two fuel injectors for each cylinder. One fuel injector was used at lower RPM, and the other one was used at higher RPM. When the switch would occur between these two fuel injectors was all decided by the car's computer. The different positions of these injectors allowed for the fuel to be fully atomized, which in turn allows the fuel to be fully burned, which improves performance and efficiency. On top of that, each cylinder was given its own miniature ignition coil. All of this combined in an impressive 618 horsepower. And a relatively efficient engine. It got a fuel economy between 9.3 and 23.4 miles per gallon, obviously depending on how you drove it. If you pad the throttle to the floor, you're looking about 9 miles per gallon. But if you were careful and you didn't want to burn through fuel, you didn't necessarily have to. On top of all that, they wanted to make the car light. This means that there was no traction control, no ABS, no power brakes, and no power steering. Although strangely, air conditioning was standard on the car, which makes no sense to me, but that's what they did. The only complaint that I read about was with the brakes having no power brakes. While they definitely did their job and they could stop the car without an issue, it required a very strong right foot and you really had to slam on the brakes as hard as you could to get high performance uh, stopping out of them. This is fine if you are on a track and you want to be driving on the edge, 
However, for daily driving, the brakes were a little bit rough to use. Another unique and very cool thing about the McLaren F1 is the seating arrangement. Inspired by F1 cars, the driver is put centered and forward in the car. There are two passenger seats that are set back on either side of the driver. This allows the driver to see the road directly in front of the car, and visibility is amazing, at least in the forward direction, not so much in the reverse direction. This central seating position also reduces the feeling of body roll, not that there was much body roll with the stiff high-performance suspension, but the little bit that was there really wasn't felt by the driver. Handling was impressive, and the car behaved predictably at pretty much any speed. However, there was so much performance that the driver's bravery usually is gone before the car's potential is. So really, as long as you're brave enough, the car can do what you want it to do. The only question is if you're willing to, uh, to push it that hard. And uh, for most people, probably not. Obviously, the specs for this car are impressive. The standard car could hit a top speed of 231 miles per hour. A version of the car that had the rev limiter removed, which is normally set at 7,500 RPM, was able to hit a top speed of 242 miles per hour. However, it should be noted that it was determined that the limiting factor for top speed was the gearing, not the engine. Drivers said that at top speed, the car was still pulling, and if they had another gear to shift into, the car could have easily gone faster. The car was able to be stable at high speeds thanks to an active rear spoiler that would rise and lower depending on speed. The car was also given small underbody fans that would generate ground effect grip. Ground effect is a pretty nutty idea that was briefly used in Formula 1 racing before it was banned. These fans essentially function like a vacuum cleaner and literally suck the car to the road. Uh, the fans used to create this ground effect were also set up to pull air through the engine bay, helping to cool the engine. So increasing grip and increasing cooling seems like a win-win. 0 to 60 time. 3.1 seconds. The true speed and acceleration of this car is hard to describe. Perhaps the best way to go about it is to compare it to other high-performance cars of the time. Car and Driver said it simply when testing the car in 1994. Quote, Forget the Jaguar XJ220, Bugatti EB110, the Ferrari F40. Until now, cars deserving to be called rapid. The McLaren blitzes them all. The McLaren F1 was lightweight and had lots of power, and was so responsive as it was naturally aspirated, it didn't have any power steering. There was little between the car, the road, and the driver. It was an amazing driving experience, and the performance was there. It was impressive in every sense. Handled well, pulled hard, didn't feel overly complex, it was just a simplistic, well-designed, expensive, but beautifully engineered high-performance car. It does seem a little bit silly that when this car was being designed, there was no interest in motorsport. If you're going to design a car like this, you might want to see what it can do up against other high-performance cars. 
Luckily, there were teams that came to Murray and were like, please, let us use the McLaren F1 for racing. And eventually, he said yes. The F1 was put in different race series starting in 1995. One of these cars is the F1 GTR, which was designed to compete in the PBR Global GT Series. And this version, the F1 GTR, was given engine upgrades, but actually had less power than the production version due to air restrictors mandated by the race series. This car produced around 591 horsepower. But the car was overall lighter and was given upgraded carbon brakes as well as reworked body panels that included the addition of cooling ducts. This car would go on to win the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1995, an incredible feat for a car that was never meant to actually be a race car. Also, kind of... Interestingly, if a customer wanted an even more insane version of a McLaren F1, there was potential to take a race version of the McLaren F1 and convert it back into a road-going version. And this was done a couple times. Those cars must have been insane, because they truly were race cars on the road. Very, very little were changed about them. And so... If you wanted an absolute nutty version of an already nutty car, that was probably your best bet. I also feel that the McLaren F1 truly shows what a enthusiast car needs to be. Simple. There's not much to these cars. And that is what is so different about modern production cars compared to high-performance cars. People that don't care about the driving experience want things like ABS, power assist, hell right now, even things that parallel park for you or control your speed at cruising without you doing anything. And those are all fine for people that don't care about the driving experience. They want to get to A to B. But if you do care about cars and you care about how it feels to drive the car, and what it's like to drive the car, and the personality of the car. Simplistic, well-designed cars like the McLaren F1 are your best bet. And I don't mean any judgment in this, it's just an interesting look at the two paths that cars can take. Those for everyday people, and for those that care about what their car is like. Two very, very different cars. But the ultimate version, the best version, of a car that is designed to be driven and enjoyed while being driven is the McLaren F1. That's going to be it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed. If you'd like to support the podcast, the number one way to do that is to leave reviews and follow the podcast on whichever platform you are listening. Also, recommending the podcast to any friends or family who you think would enjoy it means a ton. You're also welcome to follow me on social media. My Instagram is automotive.podcast. My Twitter is at automotivepod. And my Facebook is at automotivepodcast. I post car facts and will let you know about upcoming episodes. Other than that, I hope you enjoyed and I will see you next week.